I'm Kim Raycon, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Harper Academics podcast, Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators and students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic Calling, Simon Winchester. Simon Winchester, OBE, is the acclaimed author of many books, including most recently, The Perfectionists, How Precision Engineers Created the Modern World. But the episode you're about to hear is about a different book. I love the Oxford English Dictionary, the OED, and spent much of my final years of grad school tracing the medieval words of work, work, travail, labor, to name a few, and the puzzle of what these words mean and what they could potentially mean across centuries was one of my favorite parts of the work of reading and thinking about Middle English and medieval texts. When I came across Simon Winchester's The Professor and the Madman, a tale of murder, insanity, and the making of the Oxford English Dictionary, I devoured it. It quickly became a favorite to read and eventually a favorite to teach to my first-year composition students. When we were at the annual conference on college composition and communication in March, I was struck by how many faculty came into our booth and either lauded the copies we had or told me they had no idea there was any great story behind the OED. Simon's book tells a story of tragedy, intellectualism, madness, and intrigue, just as good as any plot set in the mid-1800s would do. It was an absolute pleasure sitting down with Simon when he was in New York to record this episode of Harper Academic Calling about a book that has been near and dear to me, both as a student and a teacher. The Professor and the Madman is available in paperback from Harper Perennial and is available in ebook and digital audio formats. So today in the office with us we have Simon Winchester, author of most recently The Perfectionists, but author of what we're going to be talking about today, The Professor and the Madman, A Tale of Murder, Insanity, and the Making of the Oxford English Dictionary. So Simon, thank you so much for joining us. It's a delight. So the first question that I'm going to ask is probably a question that might take forever, which is fine if it does. I have my reasons for loving the Oxford English Dictionary. Why do you love the Oxford English Dictionary so much? I think I bought my first copy secondhand in a bookstore in Hong Kong when I lived there in the um, mid-90s. And I'd obviously known about the thing. I think my favourite dictionary of choice up to that moment was Chambers' 20th Century Dictionary because Mm -hmm. I was a very keen crossword person. But then I got this OED, sort of battered and careworn with a lot of marginalia. And I thought, when I looked at any word, but I mean ordinary words like set and take and run, and that each word, there was a biographical sketch of the word. The word literally came alive because you knew when the OED editors asserted anyway, you knew when it had been born, when it first appeared in the language, how it evolved over the years. So each entry told a story rather than simply presented a definition and an etymology, which is what most dictionaries do. So I was I was captivated. As I think someone like H. L. Mencken said, it's the greatest continuing thriller which has ever been written because you can read it as biographical material. Mm. So I loved it and then fortuitously I came to write this book and have subsequently bought 
other editions, and then the Oxford University Press very kindly gave me a beautifully leather-bound uh, library edition of the thing, and um, that has pride of place in my study up in Massachusetts, where I live. Um, but I never use it, because, of course, I use online. Yeah, well, yeah. Mercifully, they're still producing the printed version, and the big question, which I imagine we might get to later in this, is are they going to, for the third edition, which will be published in, we think, 2037, will they go to the trouble of printing what will probably be 80 volumes, which is an awful lot of trees to cut down. <laughs> so um, I hope so, because I think as a simple as, a, as an entity, a heavy entity, it's a wonderful thing, and because I can get it inexpensively now, I give it as wedding presents and graduation presents. A friend of mine is about to graduate from NYU. That's what his present is. And even though his shelves are bowed under its enormous weight, I think everyone that gets it, including this chap, enormously grateful. That is a, a wonderful, wonderful gift. The Professor and the Madman tells the story primarily of two men, James Murray and Dr. W.C. Minor. How did you learn about their story? I had, because of my interest in the OED, had become interested in dictionaries generally. This is in the, the mid-90s in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. And um, I read you know, a variety of books about the making of dictionaries and what kind of people lexicographers were. There was one particular book by a man called um, Green um, called Chasing the Sun, mm -hmm. Dictionaries and the Men say the men except it in Victorian England they, it was largely men um, and I read this book and I remember vividly I'd, um, in fact I was, I was in New York for this particular episode so I had bought it I think in Hong Kong but anyway I was reading it in bed one night it was a Thursday in <clears throat> I would say early 1998 I think so I read this book which was thrilling in and of itself and then the next morning and I hope this is I'll go to tell you this I was reading it in the bath the following okay. morning so if you can imagine it's about 7.15 in the morning in America I'm reading it in the bath and there is a footnote in this book which said readers of this book will because they're sort of au fait with the whole dictionary world will of course of course be familiar with the story of W.C. Minor the deranged American lunatic murderer who was such a prolific contributor to the OED. And I sort of sat up in the bath like Archimedes saying, what? Deranged American lunatic murderer OED? What's all that about? And I had one friend in Oxford who called Elizabeth Knowles, who was a lexicographer and a compiler of um, dictionaries of quotations and so forth. And I realised that 7.15 in the morning in America, 12.15 in the afternoon in Oxford, she might be at work. And I knew she knew about Minor. I suspected she did anyway. So I dialed, I had the telephone by the bath, and I dialed her number, a number which I shall remember for the rest of my days, 01144186555767. And it didn't really rang, and it rang, and it rang, and it, I was just about to hang up when this rather ill-tempered voice, yes, what do you want? And I said, Elizabeth, I'm, first of all, this is Simon Winchester. I'm calling from America. And if, in case you hear any strange noises, I'm actually in the bath. But I just wanted to ask you, have you ever heard of a chap called W.C. Minor? And she said, you're in luck. I probably know more about W.C. Minor than anyone extant at the moment. And indeed, I wrote a paper about him for 
a journal of lexicography published in Madison, Wisconsin, called Dictionaries, somewhat unimaginatively. And if you like, if you do me the honor of getting out of your bath and driving yourself and going to your fax machine, which in those days we used to have, I will fax you the essay. So I went, and she said, first of all, I apologize. I was just going out for lunch, and then I heard the phone ringing down the end of the corridor, and I ran back. I mean, all of these things, I think if I hadn't picked up the yeah. phone, or she hadn't picked it up, or I'd hung up, and just this never would have happened. So there was uh, material coming out of the fax machine. And all I was interested in, frankly, was the bibliography. Was there a book about this? Because it seemed on its face to be a fascinating story. And no, there wasn't. So she rang back at the end of the transmission to say, did you get it? Can you read it? And I said, yes. And she said, I should say one thing before I go off now to my delayed lunch, which is that when I was researching this paper, I went to the lunatic asylum where he was incarcerated and I saw his medical files, which were about 11 linear feet of files, but I wasn't allowed to read them. But she said, the law has changed and I reckon you'll probably be able to read them. And if you do, I warrant it's a rather good story to tell. And the rest is history. So part of your research then involved going to Broadmoor and doing, <clears throat> doing the research there and having access to these, to these files. Certainly. I mean, there were two asylums in the story. There's Broadmoor, where he mm -hmm. was incarcerated for most of his life, and then St. Elizabeth's mm -hmm. in Washington, where John Hinckley, the assassin-to-be of uh, Ronald Reagan, were incarcerated, and Ezra Pound, and other famous literary figures. So I didn't go to the... In fact, there was no need to go to the one in, um, in Washington, because by then he wasn't working on the dictionary. But no, I did go to the one in uh, to Broadmoor, and... Uh, chilly and extraordinary place. Yep. Within, what was that like? Well, it was weird because there were such a lot of infamous people there. I mean, the Yorkshire Ripper mm -hmm. won't mean much to an American audience, but he was there and he had committed these terrible, terrible murders in Yorkshire. And um, other people, I think one of the Cray brothers, they were yeah. notorious mm -hmm. gangsters in London. I think one of them was there. Um, and it was very strange. And also, uh, I always think it's a, a slightly amusing, W.C. Minor, when he was there, because he was wealthy and he was, a, you know, yes, he was floridly insane, but he was much loved, I think, by the by the custodians, um, because he was learned and gentle and a doctor and all of these things. And he was given two cells, one of which largely was where he kept his library and he played his violin and had a fireplace. And, well, the same two cells are there now, now occupied by two very, very violent men. But one of them, um, came up to me. Uh, of course, everything's supervised and there are guards there all the time to make sure that you don't get involved too much. And he said, I have to tell you that um, I shouldn't be here. And of course, everyone says, I shouldn't be here. I'm innocent or whatever. But there was truth in this man's story. He was a Hamas or Fatah operator mm -hmm. who had attempted to assassinate the Israeli ambassador on Park Lane in London and had been arrested, the ambassador survived, I think he was grievously hurt. But um, they wouldn't put him in a regular prison because of the fear that he might be sprung. Mm -hmm. They put him instead in this incredibly secure um, institution for the criminally insane, which I believe he was manifestly not insane, just to hide him away. Hmm. And he told me, and so I found out that this was indeed true, and, and published the fact in an in, mentioned it in an interview in the London Times in about 1999 the 
trouble I got into was extraordinary. <laughs> and the fellow is still there, I think, doing a life sentence in a lunatic asylum, surrounded by very mad people for making what was essentially a political act mm -hmm. in London in the 1990s. So there were all sorts of interesting aspects to this. But if I may, I hope you will allow me to tell you this, the work rate of W.C. Minor, mm -hmm. I mean, he, as you know, he filled in all these scripts. He, he, um, the story of how he came to do it is, um, is interesting in and of itself. But in 1902, I think it was, he suddenly stopped contributing. Mm -hmm. And everyone thought, well, he must be ill. He's an elderly man now. Um, no one was quite certain why his work rate had fallen off until I was going through the files and most of the files are written in beautiful copper plate handwriting or, as technology advanced, typewritten. But there was this one note written in pencil, evidently by one of the guards, mm -hmm. which said, this morning Dr. Minor came to the front gate, or the south gate, and said, quick, quick, I need a doctor. And I, the guard, said, pray, Dr. Minor, what appears to be the problem? He said, I've just sliced off my penis and thrown it in the fire, believing that that is the source of all my problems. And um, I was taken to hospital and surgery and so forth was carried out. But I realized in an instant, of course, that was why he had stopped contributing. So when I read this in the archive, I stood up and I sort of shouted, hooray, and the almost sort of dancing a jig and, <laughs> and to the point where one of the guards said well I wouldn't do that if I were you which he might not be allowed to leave you know. <laughs> um, so I went up that afternoon I did a bit more research on this um, I went up to Oxford which is only 30 miles away to the OED headquarters and I said sort of wrapped my fist on the table to get everyone to be quiet and said I've now worked out I've discovered not worked out discovered the reason why Miner's work rate fell off so dramatically and told them and there was this sort of gasp of amazement and that was fine. So then I was catching a train back down to London that night and boarding the train at the same time as me were two elderly lady lexicographers who worked on the OED but were not at that meeting where I had told everyone to be quiet or asked everyone to be quiet. And uh, I said got a story to tell you so we got onto the train which is sort of open plan carriage with lots of men mainly who had been up there dealing with the motor car industry because there are lots of car assembly plants in Oxford and I have I've at least had because I was so excited a sort of carrying voice and so I was describing it in fairly lurid terms that using the same blade that he had used he had sharpened on a whetstone the same blade that he had used to cut out the three by five slips that he would send off to the dictionary tying a ligature around the base of his member and because he was a surgeon he knew how to do it and then with one moment slicing it off and from all over the carriage you see all these <laughs> men crossing their legs with horror but the wonderful thing about these two women is that they remained stoically unmoved by this but you could see the lexicographical gears grinding in their brains and I swear I know it makes the story rather better but I swear it's true they said in unison oh autopiotomy paused and they said yes yes piotomy is the amputation of the penis but autopiotomy is doing it yourself wouldn't you agree Mildred said one to the other and if it is Mr. Winchester I should say that you should introduce the word 
in your new book, if you want me to write it, which of course I hadn't at that stage, in an illustrative manner so that we can use it in the third edition of the OED and your fame will therefore be eternal. And you are, in fact, <laughs> I, you are, in fact, in the OED. I'm, I know, it's, I'm very, that's, I mean, yes, the book has been successful, so I'm delighted, but to get in the OED, <laughs> now that's a triumph. <laughs> it, it really, it really is, because in the paperback edition that we have, that story is included in sort of the, the, the after, PS section, yeah, the, the afterward. And when I read that, I was going to ask you about it if you didn't bring it up yourself, because I, when I read that, I was just absolutely delighted, because I thought to myself, if, if this book was not as successful as it was, I mean, it, it does, in some ways, if you love the OED so much, it sort of pales in comparison to know that you will be there I mean, for, forever. forever. Yes, <laughs> right. So in the 17th century, dictionary culture was expanding. Seven were produced during that time alone, and as you note in the book, um, the issues with all the preceding dictionaries um, seem to fall into two categories. One is this idea of ignoring language in its entirety, and two is sort of the idea that English is becoming a very global language, a global currency. So how does the Oxford English Dictionary work to fill these two needs? What about it makes it sort of the most complete dictionary of its time, and still perhaps today? Well, first of all, I mean, the early dictionaries, as you well know, are um, bilingual dictionaries. Mm -hmm. So they translate words from Latin or French or German or Greek into English. So that's what a dictionary was, dictionarius, which is the Latin word for such a book. The first English-to-English dictionary, in other words, an explanation of what a word meant, was, and I forget the date, but I'm going to arbitrarily say something like 1634, Mm -hmm. Robert Cordry, who was a schoolmaster in Coventry and England, he made what's called the the table alphabetical of hard and unusual words to allow, he actually said something like servants and and that women, people that are not necessarily likely to know the intricacies of the language, and this was 17th century, um, an explanation of what these words meant, and an awful lot of them were very sort of complicated and what were known as, um, well, they're sort of portmanteau words that are never used today, things like bulsitate and arch cremation, I mean, things that have gone out of favour, which in the times, the times, you know, people wore periwigs and ruffled blouses and things, and the men, that is, and they used very extravagant language, which they often didn't know what it meant. So this dictionary provided a sort of vade mecum to tell them what these words did or should mean. So they were sort of nonsensical, but it became a very popular book, and it was followed fairly swiftly by other monolingual dictionaries that were always or often specialised. So a dictionary of objects found in the home, or a dictionary of um, mammals, or a dictionary of insects. And it wasn't really until 1755 when Samuel Johnson came along and said, I'm going to prepare a dictionary of all words in the English language. And he had a team of half a dozen people working just off Fleet Street in London for, I forget how many years, let's say six or so years, to assemble a dictionary which was biblical in its scope. I mean, he hoped anyway. And um, that was the dictionary for the better part of 150 years. You know, on a learned person's bookshelf, you had a Bible, at Shakespeare, and you had the dictionary, which was Samuel Johnson's. 
And the thing about Johnson's dictionary, majestic though it was, was it was woefully inaccurate and imprecise and had these sort of politically motivated definitions, of which the most famous, of course, is the definition for the word oats, a grain commonly given to horses, but which in Scotland feeds the people. You know, that's a, a political comment which uh, is nowadays not allowed so much in dictionaries. So it was at that stage that in the middle of the 19th century, we're talking about 1820, 1830, 1840, um, there became a movement, the London Philological Society, which was set up to people, once again men, who had a fascination with words, a growing realisation that the English language is something rare and extraordinary and needs to be studied rather than simply breathed in and out like the oxygen we breathe needs to be studied. And they realised that many, many words that were in relatively common use were not in Samuel Johnson's dictionary. And so they set up something called the Unregistered Words Committee. And that would meet every couple of weeks or so in London and discuss what are we going to do with this ever-growing pile of unregistered words. And then came the crucial moment in, I think, 1855, when Richard Chenevix Trench, who was head of the um, Unregistered Words Committee, said let's make a dictionary, a proper dictionary, and let's be super ambitious about it, not sort of do a half-hearted attempt like Johnson did, but let us say every single word in the English language has got to be there, with all the twists and turns of its meanings over the, over the centuries, and the only way we can produce such a thing with quotations to show the varying meanings and shades of meaning and senses of each word is for us to read everything that's ever been written in the English language. Of course, everyone said, what? It's impossible. He said, it's not totally impossible if we get a vast army of volunteers. And that was the secret. It was crowdsourcing. It was like Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. Like They got the world, the hive mind, all over the English-speaking world. So obviously the United Kingdom, but also Canada, Australia, India, the empire. This is a product of empire. And people would see a word, even an ordinary word, like the, or a preposition, or a personal pronoun, I, or me, or we, or complicated words, um, and would send in, when they saw this word in an illustrative sentence, or clause, or phrase, they would send it out with a citation on a slip of paper to the what was then called the New English Dictionary, which was being prepared first of all in London, under a variety of editors, but principally under this remarkable Scotsman called James Murray, who took it over in the 1860s. And um, from then on, it officially was started in 1857 and was the first edition, was completed in 1928. Mm -hmm. And um, since then, it's been, there's a, a supplement in 1933 of the words that have been left out of the first 12 volumes. And then those 13 volumes languished until um, the 1980s when they brought out a second edition and then digitized it with the assistance from the um, computer department of the University of Waterloo in Ontario. And that is what you, if you buy the OED now, that's what you will get, the 20 volumes of the second edition. And now they're preparing the third edition. Exciting. One of the stories that the professor in the Madman tells is actually 
to me, anyway, it comes off as, as a, a tragic story of W.C. Minor. Surprisingly, perhaps to some people, he is an American army surgeon. Was there anything that particularly surprised you about Miner's background or his relationship to this whole project or about how he worked? Well, yes. I mean, the discovering the method of how he worked was quite extraordinary. I mean, his madness, his absolute obsession with detail, his minute handwriting, all of it plays into a mind or suggests a mind that is not entirely what the mind of the three of us here today. It's an unusual mind. I mean, when you think of it, you've got to, comp you've got to produce books or booklets of words. You've got to make your own little index. So, you know, you look at a word like, I don't know, baboon. Do you put it at the top of the page? Do you put it halfway down? Because are you likely to see words that begin with something before B-A-B? Is there something that begins with B-A-E? Um, or no, B-A-A, -A, the noise that a little sheep makes, I suppose. Um, write tiny, tiny letters. And the definition that he finds, or an illustrative entry that he finds, um, making these booklets, I mean, they're things of great beauty because his handwriting is so legible, so tiny, and so meticulously composed. And then it all goes wrong because he then goes berserk. So Fraser uses floridly mad and for two or three days he's out in outer space somewhere having these extraordinary principally sexual fantasies uh, and then he's back to normal again um, and I love the fact about him that I mean, there are many things that I just and I'm hoping that in the movie Sean Penn plays him sympathetically um, I mean one of the extraordinary things I suppose the, the haunting aspect of his early incarceration is he shoots this man and called George Merritt I should back up a bit W.C. Minor trains at Yale as a doctor is inducted into the US Army f goes to fight in the Civil War in one of the most horrendous of all battles in Virginia the Battle of the Wilderness and one of his jobs is to brand with the letter D on the cheek with a branding iron a deserter. They weren't shot, they were returned to work again, but they were branded and forever, almost it would last the rest of their lives, with a, this letter of shame. And he, as a doctor, a sensitive man, objected to doing this. My Hippocratic oath doesn't allow it, but he did it anyway. That triggered what presumably where there was some incipient madness in the man. And he ultimately had to be dismissed from the army. The people that he was branding tended to be Irishmen, because there were a lot of Irish um, mercenaries in both the northern and the southern armies. And um, so he's mad. He goes back to New Haven, where his parents lived. Clearly mad. They say, go to London. Um, you're a painter. We are friendly with John Ruskin. Learn how to paint. Take, take it easy, chill out. So he went to London, but he took his gun with him, and he was afraid of Irishmen seeking vengeance for what he had done. He shot a man one night, believing him to be Irish. He wasn't at all Irish. 
George Merritt, who was a brewery worker, first shooting murder in the streets of London ever. He was he gave himself up, said yes I did it, was tried, was sentenced to spend essentially the rest of his life, or the phrase is to be detained until Her Majesty's pleasure be known in this lunatic asylum. What was almost the first thing he did, realising the gravity of the crime, he wrote to the widow of the man he had murdered, Eliza Merritt, saying, I'm terribly sorry for having murdered your husband, um, or a terrible mistake and so forth, and I'd like you to have some money because I know you've got lots of children. And she accepted the money eventually, but slowly they developed a relationship. And because he was such a voracious reader, he asked her to bring him books and the governor of the asylum allowed her can you imagine happening today? The widow of the victim of the crime to come and visit him in his cell or his cells. And she would bring in books. And it's between two of the volumes that one day he found the slip of paper, the invitation published by James Murray, the editor of the OED, the invitation for people that have time on their hands and a love of language to contribute to the making of this new dictionary. But the relationship between him and Eliza in the book, I could only surmise in a very sort of, I found no evidence that the relationship was anything but proper. And in the film, they've treated it very delicately. They kiss. There is a evident fondness between the two of them. But I found that one of the most touching and extraordinary aspects of his character. Was there anything in the sort of eventual friendship that develops between Murray and Minor that surprised you? I mean, because these are these are two men, and this this really surprised me, how similar they both looked. Yeah. Uh, I imagine that when they finally came face to face that it was probably a bit of shock for both of them to, to see how much they resembled each other. I know, I'd sort of write about that, and I think I say it was rather like for Murray walking towards a mirror and mm -hmm. seeing himself coming towards himself both with these long sort of swallowtail beards. Um, yes, and, and, and how extraordinary is this, that here you have a, an ordained minister of the church, a man of high impassioned rectitude, learned scholar, meeting a lunatic American doctor, so different in so many ways, and yet united by this passion for the English language. And that's that's a love story in and of itself yeah, absolutely. and certainly when when um, in 1910 I think it was Murray makes this plea to Winston Churchill I mean this was another wonderful discovery I, I can't tell you how enthusiastic I was about doing the research for this book but you come across nuggets which you think god this is the story gets better and better Murray says this old man no harm to anyone you know he's cut off his penis and He's frail now and he's been a great ally of the dictionary. He ought to go home. And um, I mean, he's thousands of miles from what remains of his family. And his brother, Alfred, had come over to the trial in the 1870s. It's now 1910, 40 years later. Brother's still alive. They write to each other. So I'll petition the Home Secretary as the ultimate authority to have him released on, on, on parole, as it were. And the discovery that the Home Secretary at the time was the young Winston Churchill was just, from my point of view, just the jam and cream on the top of the story. So he goes to see Churchill, and Churchill says, yeah, you're right. And so he is released, 
steps out of Broadmoor for the first time, meets Murray, who escorts him to the boat that's going to take him back to America, and he's got under his ulster the first six completed volumes of the dictionary. And there's his brother Alfred to meet him, and they sail back together. I mean, it's just the story sort of writes itself. Absolutely. <laughs> Sails uh, off into the sunset. Into the sunset, yeah. <laughs> um, do you have a favorite entry in the OED? Well, my favorite word, I think it is in the OED, although I, my favorite story about a word is the very unusual, it's a very ugly word, um, is the word malmarocking, which is M-A-L-L-E-M-A-R-O-K-I-N-G, malmarocking. And I first came across it in Chambers, which is the dictionary that I, my dictionary of choice, um, and it's, it's quite a complicated definition. It is the carousing of drunken sailors on ice-bound Greenland whaling ships. Okay. Who knew there was such a word? <laughs> but the important thing about how this shows how words evolve it was that the next edition of Chambers' 20th Century Dictionary, the definition was ever so slightly changed. It said Malmarocking, the carousing of drunken seamen on ice-bound whaling ships, left out the word Greenland. Mm. And this prompted, I worked for The Guardian at the time, prompted the editor then, a chap called Geoffrey Taylor, who had a sort of puckish wit, to write a tongue-in-cheek editorial, saying, we notice from the new edition of Chambers' Dictionary that the foul practice of malmarocking has unleashed itself from its native Greenland and appears now to be spreading all across the world. It must be stopped immediately. <laughs> that is humour I appreciate. That is, is humour I very much appreciate. Well, I mean, also Chambers. I don't want this is supposed to be about the OED. Chambers has the dictionary. It has a few sort of slightly witty entries. The one I like is the definition of éclair, cake, which as you probably know French, is the word for lightning. Um, <clears throat> éclair, a cake, long in dimension but short in duration. <laughs> that's, that's also a good one. Also a good one. So I just have one more question for you, and it's a question that we ask all of our guests on the podcast. Um, since this is primarily for teachers and their students, who is your favorite teacher? Well, my favorite teacher in history, I have no doubt about it, long dead, a chap called Harold Mann, who was my geography teacher. At, I, I went to a boarding school in Dorset. And Harold, and it's funny because the school, which is called Hardy's School, it was in Dorset, but nothing to do with Thomas Hardy. It was with an Admiral Hardy who lived in the 16th century. So many people have said that this otherwise unsung man led them into realms of discovery which no other teacher ever did for them. He, I had wanted to join the Royal Navy as a small boy, but I turned out to be red, green, colorblind. And he said, if you want to wander around the world doing interesting things, why not be a geologist? And I'm your geography teacher, but I know a bit about geology. Why don't you take O-level, which is the exam that children take when they're 16 in England, and I'll teach you enough that you'll pass O-level geology. So he did, and I did pass it. And I then went up to Oxford to read geology and became a geologist. And um, I'm so glad for that, because even though I write you know, about all sorts of subjects um, and didn't go to university to read English or something like that, knowing a little bit anyway about another subject I think is very valuable for a writer. And I've written three books now for Harper, which are about geology. It's Krakatoa, the 
that would change the world and a crack in the edge of the world, which is about the San Francisco earthquake. Um, but I'm the value I ascribe to knowing a bit about geology um, is immeasurable to me. Harold Mann was a good, kind man, and I'll never forget him. That's wonderful. Well, Simon, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been enjoyable.